Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, name above all names. It's awfully nice to be gathered together here in the house of the Lord with the people of God today. We can give thanks today that we have hope. The apostle said, if in this life only I have hope, then I am of all men most, most miserable. We don't just have hope in the here, in the now, and the next thing that's happening. You know, it's, it's nice when the stock market is doing good, or it's nice when there's peace uh, among nations or prosperity in the land. That's nice. But if we have hope in this life, we're most miserable. Why are we miserable? Because can we control life and death? Can we stop all sickness? Can we control whether a car will veer off the road? You know, I was a uh, reporter years ago, and there was a scene that kind of stuck in my heart and mind I never really got over. And um, I, I was called down to an accident scene where a, uh, there was a car sitting in the middle of the road, and it was still there, uh, but it had gone from, you know, a full-size car to a smash car. Uh, but there was the cab, the cab was still there, um, and there were, there, the people were gone. Uh, but in, in, the, in the car, there were bags of groceries, and one of the things that, that really affected me is that they had gone and they had bought a bunch of seed where they were going to plant their garden. And there were seeds all over the road, and there were seeds all over the car, and both of them had been instantly killed uh, when a, a truck driver uh, of a large semi-truck uh, got distracted. Uh, and he, I think he said he sneezed or he did something and he went towards the center lane. And both of them thought they were going to go home and plant their garden. They thought they were going to make their dinner. And they didn't. Now you go, well, what, what, this is a real positive way to begin a church service. <laughs> But the deal is, is this is the reality we live in. We don't know. The Bible says we don't have the promise of tomorrow. And so today our focus is going to be on those things. We think that we have tomorrow. We think that we have endless amounts of time with those that we love. But, but we're really not guaranteed those things. It, would, it, it 
maybe can be expected in our hearts and our minds, but really God would, God would chide us against that assurance that we know. That's why when he, uh, in his word, he tells us, don't say tomorrow I'm going to do this. Don't say I'm going to do that. Say, Lord willing, and if we live, tomorrow I will go here, and tomorrow I will go there. That doesn't mean we should not drink deeply. In fact, those that understand how close we are to losing people are the people who really drink deepest of life. They make those times that they spend with their loved ones count. And when they embrace, as they walk out the door, they hold them knowing this might be my last goodbye. Sometimes it takes losing someone to come to that understanding that these moments that we have right now are a wonderful, wonderful gift that we have with those that we love. Psalm 48 reminds us of who is great. It's not us, right? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. What's wonderful about the city of God, the Bible tells us that in that city, there will be no more dying. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. Amen? Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. The Bible tells us that when King Jesus comes to the holy new Jerusalem, there will be no need for a son. For he will light, be the light of the world and the light of that city. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by, they saw it, and they marveled, and they were troubled, and they hasted away. Fear took hold upon them in pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God. It's God's mercy, amen. O God, in the midst of thy temple, according to thy name, O God, so it is. Thy praise unto the ends of the earth, and thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice, and let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion. Go round about her and tell of her towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks and consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever and he will be a guide unto death. We learned a few weeks ago that we are the city of God, that we are Mount Zion. And as this psalm reminds us to go around its bulwarks and and look at it and remember, I would say today as you gather together, walk around. Look at, look at those people here that are the towers and the bulwarks of the city of God and remember it well. Amen. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift that is the salvation of our soul, but also uh, the city, the church, the people of God that you've given us, our friends, our family, our, those that we uh, join with each week to break bread and to to eat and to fellowship and to, to love one another. As we begin our time in heaven, and we begin it right now, Lord, help us to begin that relationship that we will have in heaven where nothing stands between one another, where sins do not separate us. Lord, I pray that, that we would be a people that confessed our sins and forsook them and that we repented when we did one another wrong, Lord, that we might indeed live that life now, that we will live in heaven, that life of peace and joy and fellowship with the saints. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would cleanse us from our sins, that you would draw us near to you, that you would make us fit for heaven. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said amen.
Amen. Judah's good king Hezekiah, God saved Jerusalem from certain destruction from the mighty Assyrian king Sennacherib. We've been talking about this amazing story really for the past three weeks as we've looked at Psalm 46, Psalm 47, and Psalm 48, which uh, I had uh, come to understand based on the scholarship of others and, and, and my own investigation, and I'd come to see these as a trio of psalms about this great event where God dealt with Sennacherib. But upon further study and reflection, it seems to me not particularly though to any other commentator, so you can take it or leave it, that there are not three, but there are five in this series. And uh, I can get into all the reasons why, but that, that wouldn't be beneficial for you. But it seems to me that it wasn't really three, but it's actually five that are written by un, their unnamed authors, and they had to do with the same thing. And they seem to me very much so tied together. <clears throat> so the next time we come together and I do Psalm 50, we're going to be on this same, little, this same little group. So you see, the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib is a multifaceted story. And it doesn't end with these invaders who come around Jerusalem and God kills overnight 185,000 of them, right? It doesn't end there. When Sennacherib goes home to his temple of his false god and he begins to make an offering and his sons come in and kill him. We had a funny, last week when we read this uh, as part of our scripture reading, when we got to the part where Sennacherib's sons killed him, killed their father, Andy leans over to me and whispers in my ear, Happy Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> That was kind of rough, right? Uh, you know, but that's what happened to Sennacherib. That was his present from his sons on Father's Day there uh, in the temple. But now there's even more to the story. You know, the stories of God that we, that we read about, the stories are not about the Assyrians. And they're not about the Philistines. Now they're in the stories, but who are the stories about? They're about God's people. The story centers around, as all of them do, God's people and how he dealt with them. Paul explained to the Corinthians that the stories of the Old Testament were not only meant uh, for them and to deal with them, but they were meant as a warning and a teaching for us who live today. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says it this way. Now all of these things, he's referring to an Old Testament story. Now all of these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, and with the temptation, he will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What does that have to do? What is that all together? He's saying God gave us examples of things that happened to people and how they failed and how they, they did not do what was right to remind us that we all walk in similar uh, temptations no matter what time we're living in. We're living in the time of chariots and horses and the Babylonians, or we're living in the time of the internet and of Facebook and of uh, the great American dream or whatever you want to call it. We still all say, face the exact same things. 
So what is the lesson of Psalm 49 and of the story of Hezekiah? The story as a whole is a warning to men about pride and presumption and the dangers of feeling, as my grandfather used to say, that you are too big for your britches. The story and all of its parts is told, and you can read this later if you're interested to know more, in 2 Kings from chapter 16 to 20, in 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, in Isaiah 36 through 39, and as it seems to me, the moral of it is being explained in Psalm 49. You know, when the Bible goes to that much trouble, Ryan, to tell us a story three times and then write a song about it, how many of you think that maybe the lesson might be important? Right? There are people who build an entire church off of a half of a verse that they turned upside down and held sideways, right? Nobody wants to build a church on what I'm getting ready to preach about today because everybody wants to do exactly what it says not to do. And when the Bible tells you not to do it, you go, yes, yes, but, 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 but. There was no king like King Hezekiah in his time. The Bible tells us that during the time of the divided kingdom, many years after David and Solomon, that there was this good king, and he was king of only half of Israel. Israel was divided in half at this time, and part of it was just called Israel, and the other part was called Judah. And inside of Judah was Jerusalem, and of course that's what was besieged, right? And that's where King Hezekiah was. He was in Jerusalem. Hezekiah's father was named King Ahaz. And when he died, it made Hezekiah king at the age of 25. Rebecca, can you imagine this? Being king of an entire... Well, could she could be a king. Could you imagine being queen of an entire nation at age 25? He had a huge responsibility on his shoulders at a very tumultuous time. A time, really, a very tumultuous time because his father was such a wretch. If you want to hear about a horrible, horrible guy, you should read about... King Ahaz. There was none like him either in all of the earth. But God used him in a mighty way. You know, God uses young people. And there are a lot of instances in the scriptures from David who was a early teen or, or, or a late teen or an early 20s kind of a guy. They, they, they like to depict him as being like a 15-year-old kid fighting the giant, but it really probably wasn't like that. He was probably... Uh, my son Benjamin or Nathaniel's age. He was not a great warrior and a seasoned man or whatever. He was just a young man. He was a youth. Jeremiah, though we know, the Bible tells us, was 16 years old when God began to use him. Imagine if God began to use one of the 16-year-olds of our church to speak God's word to us. How would we feel about that? You know, God does use 16-year-olds. And if you don't believe it, read the book of Jeremiah and you'll hear about a man who had fire shut up in his bones and he had a message from God and he began to speak. And it didn't matter how old he was. God uses men and women and he uses children too. Even the mother of our Lord was probably 15 years old. Can you imagine this? We hear the story of Mary and she sings the great song. She, the song she writes, the Holy Spirit filled her heart. They even wrote down her words and she was probably a little girl, no much uh, not much older than my daughter, Anna. Can you imagine what it must have been to be Hezekiah and to be king at 25? I would hesitate to see a man ordained as an elder. Would you, Andy, at age 30? 
uh, but 25, come on, they don't know anything. Come on, if you know that 25-year-olds don't know anything, raise your hand. Come on, you know this. You, you, you're, I know none of you young people are going to say it, but you don't, you don't know anything. But now it came to pass, it says this in 2 Kings 18, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that's the other part, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, that's the part we're talking about, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name, where's Abby? Was Abby. Did you know mother's name was Abby? That kind of name? Her name was actually Abijah. She was the daughter of Zechariah. Okay? Interesting. There you have it. Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Now he did, Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David, his father did. And he did some things here. He removed the high places. He broke the images. He cut down the groves. He broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For in those days the children of Israel burned incense to this thing that Moses had made. And he called it Nehufiastim. You can pronounce that. You can say that three times. I'll give you a gumball. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. That's what I want to focus on here just for a second. There was none like this guy. Not at his time and not before him, not nearing his time. He was great. But he was a 25-year-old king. Not only was he only a 25-year-old king, he was a 25-year-old king who had an ungodly father. The likes of which you cannot imagine. It would take all day for me to tell you what a nasty man that he was. From open adultery, idol worship, even offering some of his own children as burnt offerings to false gods. But thankfully, Hezekiah had a godly mother, Abby. Her own father, Zechariah, had passed on his faith onto her. And by God's grace, she was able to pass it to her son. Mothers, do not underestimate the power that you have as mothers. My mother prayed for me and cried and prayed for me and offered me to God. I remember hearing it and it affected me my whole life. She told me, you belong to God. You belong to God. You will speak his word. You will be a man of God. You will learn his word. And I heard her pray on the couch at night as I slept in my bed. Oh God, make my son a man of God. If you don't think that affected me, you don't know my story. There is some debate on whether this Zechariah was the prophet Zechariah, but it seems to me that he was. But there's some debate. There were some other great godly men named Zechariah during that time in the kingdom of God. So we're not 100% sure, but he certainly was named Zechariah. It is said here in 2 Kings 18 that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. You see, that's what the definition of greatness is in a man. Not that he is great but that he trusts in the one who is. Amen? That would be enough if, if all that it said about him was that he trusted in the Lord, but that's not all it said. It doesn't stop there. It says that after him was none like him and all the kings of Judah. But it said he was a doer. And he started doing some neat things. From the very beginning of his reign, this young man was a man of action. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 29. In the first month of the first year of the reign of Hezekiah, he did this. What does that sound like to you, Derek? The first month of the first year. 
Soon as he was anointed king, Hezekiah went to work. He didn't go, you know, I think I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to think about this for the next 15 years. No, I'm only 25 years old. No, from the first month on the first day, he did what he could. The Israelites had forgotten God and become idolaters like his father and even filled the temple with all kinds of filth from their false god worship. As soon as he was anointed king, he immediately went to work. He's a great example of what it means to be a doer. He reinstituted the Sabbath, the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> not the Sabbath, he, inter- he reintroduced the Passover feast celebration. They had stopped doing this for a number of years. They started worshiping in the temple and offering sacrifice. They had stopped doing that for years as well. And when he did those two things, the people of the land began giving their tithes and their, their offerings to the Lord. And it was an amazing thing how this brought prosperity to Jerusalem. There were so many people had brought so many gifts to the Lord that there were piles and piles and piles of money and bags of flour and bottles of wine and all this stuff was piling up and piling up. And they said, what in the world is all this? He said, these are the heaps and the piles from the people that are giving. They said, we have so many, we need to build some houses to put all the stuff in. Wouldn't that be great? If the people gave and gave and gave until you had to build a house to put it all in. 2 Kings 18, 3 through 4 tells an abbreviated version of this revival. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father did. And he began to take these idols and burn them and get rid of them. You can read about a a more extended version. He takes them, these, these false idols and altars, and he throws them in the brook of Kidron, kind of a symbolically washing the filth of this idol worship out. Not only did they sharpen their knives and start offering thousands of bullocks to God, they got out their cymbals and their trumpets. They got their praise on. And the music began to fill the air once again around Jerusalem. It was a glorious time. Can you imagine it? A time when there was pagan worship and ungodliness in the land and darkness. And they started shining the, the, up the gold inside of the temple and taking care of what was in there and cleaning out the filth that was there. This was a work of a 25-year-old man who had seen ungodliness in his life but had been taught what was right by his mother. It was a glorious time, but it was dark before those days, and so that made the glorious time even more wonderful. It was some time after this that he decided, you know what, I don't think I'm going to pay taxes anymore to Sennacherib. I don't think that when he sends the tax bill to me, God has given me this land. It's my land, and he's not going to tell me to pay him tax. And it says that he rebelled against it. Well, when he did this, the other nations around said, you know what, if he's not paying tax, we ain't paying tax. And nobody was paying tax to Sennacherib. They said, if we're going to pay tax, we're going to give it to the house of the Lord. We're going to pay our tribute to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, not Sennacherib, whoever he thinks he is. After this, the Bible says, though, that Hezekiah was exalted by the surrounding nations and given gifts from all of them because of this he became exceedingly rich with treasure. This, was, this happened all about the same time that Sennacherib came against him and God killed Sennacherib. This made Hezekiah quite a dude in the land, right? He rebelled. God killed him. He's increased in wealth. His kingdom is starting to shine. It's starting to sparkle. People around are giving him gifts. But it didn't take long until things were so good on account of his good works that what happened to Hezekiah? What do you think? How do you think this did him? Folks, it doesn't do a success is really, really, it's not that it's bad, but that it brings out our bad. All right? 
Because of his pride, God determined that God was going to kill him. Now, he did all this good. He did good, but what did he do? He took the credit for the blessings that came from it, and he began lifted up in pride. Isaiah explained that God was going to kill Hezekiah because Hezekiah was, uh, he'd gone from a good kid to a kid who thought he was too big for his own riches. But Hezekiah repented. He pleaded for his life. God relented and healed him and gave him an amazing sign. It's a really neat story. If you want to learn something about biblical archaeology, you should look into this. God tells him, he said, you, I'm going to let you live. I've heard your cry. I've heard your prayer. I'm going to let you live 15 more years. And so he told him, he said, I, Hezekiah's like, well, can I have a sign from heaven to know this is so? And God said, I will either turn the sundial back or I will move it forward. It's up to you. And he says, well, wow, could, let's move it back. And so he moves it back. It says 10 degrees. Now, I won't get into all this, but the biblical archaeology is that there was this sundial that had 10 degrees on it, okay? And you can look it all up and we can learn about it. But they found these sundials that were from this time period that uh, verifies his story. But God turned it back. He let him live. And he gave him 15 more years. Now, what do you think happens when God does nice things for us? What is, what is our temptation? You know, I was listening to uh, Brother Andy read for us from Matthew chapter 6. And I was, and I hadn't, was going to include this in there. But when Jesus talked about pray, praying, when Jesus was teaching them to pray, he asked for something, right? Give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say give us our bread tomorrow. He didn't say give us enough bread to keep us going for a year or two, right? What did he say? Give us this day our daily bread. I was also reminded that when manna came down from heaven that God made it a sin to do what? To accumulate it. Don't, don't get, don't, don't, because it was laying out there. Don't get more than you're going to eat and don't get a big pile of it and think you're going to keep it for days on end in your house. Don't do it. Collect what you need for the day and that's enough. Why? He was teaching us something about ourselves. Because what happens in our heart, we get a big pile of something, and what do we do? We start thinking about the pile and about building barns. Remember the guy who said he was going to build bigger barns to put his stuff in, and God said, yeah, today your life is required of you. When Hezekiah recovered, the king of Babylon sent him a gift. He had been healed. And the king of Babylon said, hey, I found out that they got to, you know, you're going to be all right, you're going to live, and... He sent him another gift. Hezekiah took the emissaries from Babylon on a tour of Jerusalem into the treasure houses of his own wealth and into the treasure houses of God. What do you think God thought about this? What was Hezekiah doing, Laura? Can you imagine him? Can you, hey, you know, you guys are from Babylon. I'd kind of like to show you what I got, you know? My uncle used to do this when we would visit. He'd be like, come walk with me. And we'd walk around the property. He'd go, you see that? And he'd go, pretty nice, right? And uh, he would show me this thing that he built. And he would show me this thing. You know, my, my, you know I, that's a long story. But he would, this was a tradition, actually, in my family. I'd go visit my grandfather. My grandfather would walk here, right? He would show you, you see this thing I built? Pretty nice, right? You like it? It's pretty good, right? And then he'd go, you think that's good? Let me show you this. And he would walk me to show you the next thing. 
Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to show people the nice things, but there was obviously something wrong with Hezekiah because God had to deal with him again. As he took these men from Babylon on a tour of Jerusalem, showed them everything, he was proud of how rich he was, and he kind of liked apparently how it made him feel when all the men saw his wealth. Isaiah 39, Isaiah verse 3 Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said, what, what said these men? And from whence came thee? And Hezekiah said, they're come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said unto them, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah said, all that is in my house they have seen. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming that all that's in your house which you and your fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried away into Babylon and nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And even your sons that you beget and shall issue forth from you, which they shall beget, shall they take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So what was God thinking about the prideful heart of King Hezekiah? Not a lot. He did let him live and he did give him peace in his time. But everything that he had accumulated, he lost. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because it's Psalm 49 is about the very thing. It's about men who trust in their wealth and who feel that their wealth somehow brings them security and peace and can help them. And they don't look to God for their daily bread. They look to their pile for their security. Success is a great corrupter, or maybe better said, it is a great revealer of what we are. In success and failure, the best and worst of all of us will be known. What it reveals is what we think about money. If money, lack, or abundance changes us a great deal, we've always loved it whether we had it or not. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, you know, poor people can love money just as much as rich people do. And you can be poor and your love of money can be corrupting and you can be rich and your love of money can be corrupting too. I know this is not a popular sermon. Maybe I'll do the prayer of Jabez next week so that all of you can pray about getting more wealth, okay? I had a neighbor and he would always tell me, he said, I prayed the prayer of Jabez 15 times yesterday. I'm like, oh, oh bless you, brother. He's like, God's going to expand my borders. I'm like, oh, I hope he does, brother. I hope, I hope some of that gets on me. If what others affects... If what others have affects how you treat them, it's also an indicator of what's important to you, too. Psalm 49 is a song about this, and it seems an appropriate lyric for the lesson of Hezekiah's transgressing and a warning to us all. That's why I believe it's part of the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. So we'll start off in verse 1 of Psalm 49. It's not a long psalm, so don't get carried away. Don't worry about it, but we are going to be here for a minute. To the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. This is yet another song for the sons of Korah, those children of that rebel that God swallowed up with the ground because of his pride. This is one more thing that ties it to the previous three psalms. They are also songs for the sons of Korah. The psalmist invites all to hear it, for none are immune to the venom of the serpent that he plans to expose for the deceiver in the garden of our lives that it is. In saying that this is for all men, whether low or high, or 
of rank and status or rich or poor, as it says in verse 2, he hints at his topic, teasing them a bit before they understand where he is going in the song. You know, building a bit of suspense to get the audience focused on what he's about to tell them is, it's not bad. It's biblical-inspired drama. So what he's trying to do is listen up. You guys, sometimes when I preach, I'm looking at you. I'm not looking at you because I need you to, to give me affirmation. Oh, good boy, good boy. I preach because I want you to hear what God's Word is saying. And so I'm wanting to go, are you there? Are you with me? Okay. And so I'm trying to get your attention. This is what's going on in the psalm. Hey, listen up, listen up. And he doesn't only say listen up. Hey, this is for everybody. He adds a little bit more suspense. He's like, come on. Some preachers have driven me crazy. Like, do you hear me out there? Can you hear me, Brother Chris? Come on. And they'll, they'll yell at you and drive you crazy. The whole show's like, could you shut up? I heard you the last 14 times. He asked me if I heard you. But it's not altogether inappropriate to try to get the attention of your audience because that's what's going on here in the song. In the next two verses, he gives more suspense. He's building suspense. He's trying to get attention. My mouth shall speak of wisdom. He's not speaking about it yet. He's just saying my mouth's getting ready to. Are you ready to hear what I'm getting ready to say? It's going to be good. You better listen up. My mouth shall speak of wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. Are you ready, Steve? It's about to come out. I'm about to tell you. I will incline my ear to a parable, and I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Do you get it? I'm about to sing, and what I'm about to say is something everybody should hear. His words are not just a clever turn of phrase of a jester or a minstrel that might employ as a novelty of distraction to increase his popularity. He is singing the words of godly wisdom that if understood can save a man from a world of difficulty and disappointment. If your pastor is trying to get your attention and he has something good to say, maybe you should heed it. Maybe you should go, all right, listen up, Laura. Are you listening? Come on, Laura. Come on. Hear me now, right? That's what wisdom does. Some of the young people out there, I pray that you understand that your mothers and fathers oftentimes, you ever go, hey, you ever do this, Andy? Matthew, listen to me. Listen. Your dad's trying to tell you something. Your dad's trying to tell you something that's important for you to listen to. And he's kind of like, oh, come on, dad. Oh, dad. You know, like, hey, 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 listen. Right? That's what we do. When we want our sons to go, hey, listen, I know we talk a lot. I know we fool around. But son, I need you to listen to me. Right? We do this. That's what's going on in the song. Come on. Listen, listen, listen. Older saints in the church, your elders, they offer you counsel because we have learned firsthand some very difficult lessons. I had an uncle who lived in our house for five years who lost everything because of alcoholism. And he would say, he would say, Mark, Mark, Mark. He would say, please don't learn everything from experience. Learn something from somebody else's failures. Please. And he would go, I ruined my life. I destroyed my life. Oh, Mark, please don't do this. Don't learn it yourself. Learn it from my mistake. That's what's going on. Sometimes when people are trying to talk to you, they're trying to save you. You go, oh, they're trying to control me. They're trying to think they're smart. They think they're... No, people are trying to love you. You should listen. It's better to learn from the mistakes of others. And it's a whole lot cheaper too. Here we don't even merely have the wise words of an experience. These are the words of God. The truth shared in this song lives up to the billing and the suspense, Andy, that is being played out here. So what did God say to Israel and to us here? 
Verse 5 begins laying it out by asking a question. You know, sometimes the way to get attention of the people you're trying to talk to is to ask them a question. It's a way to get somebody's brain engaged. It takes the wisdom of God's Word, though, to know what to ask. Verse 5, Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? This was the question. So he gets out his harp and he begins to play the song and he asks his audience, what should I be afraid of when bad things are happening? When the world is falling apart and they're burning your cities around and when the laws are changing and they might throw your pastor in jail and God knows what's going to happen. What should we fear when the whole world is falling apart? What should we fear when everyone is trying to put their foot on your neck? It's a great question. In fact, I think a lot of people are asking themselves this very question. What should we fear? What should we do? What should I be afraid of in times of tribulation when others are doing their best to walk on me, to put me under their power? In fact, it's such a good question. More than one Psalms ask it. Our memorization from Psalm 27, which we heard earlier, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is like that, but it's a little different. The psalm is asking what the source of our fear is when trouble comes. Not really who, but but why do we get afraid? What do you get scared of? When you you hear that something bad is going to happen or it's all going to fall apart, what is it that you're afraid of? What makes you feel safe? I'm asking you. What makes you feel safe? What sometimes makes you feel safe is in reality powerless to save you. The trust we put in these things becomes a high tower of idolatry. To fortify ourselves in time of trouble, we seek to hide inside of these things and not inside the true and impregnable fortress that is God. And God does not want us going somewhere to hide. That is no safe place at all. He wants us to hide in Him. Verse 6 through 9, here in these verses, He reveals the false prophet that speaks to our heart and leads us away from the well fortified city into a city of our own making, built on the sands of our own conceit. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9 all together because it seems to convey a single thought. Verse 6 They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever, that he should still live forever and ever and not see corruption. I'll ask it in language you might understand better. Is anyone rich enough to pay God off? I mean, kind of like an absurd question, right? Right, Corinne? Like, do you think anyone... I mean, you know, you know, these Bill Gates, he's got a lot of money, right? You think he could pay God off? You see how silly it is, right? Now, Bill Gates might not know how silly that is, but it is, right? For all the money that he has, does God spend money? Is God looking to increase his balance sheet? Is he looking for something that he needs? Like from Jonathan Narwhal, he's like, you know what, man, if, oh, man, if I could have that, ooh, I'd really have something. Jonathan goes, I got it. I got the money right here, baby. Right? I'll pay him off, right? Can we pay God off? The answer is we all know how absurd it is. Of course we cannot. And the reason he's asking the question is so that it'll give you an instant perspective on the value of it. 
We think it's really worth something. We think it can save us. We think it can help us. We get, think it gives us security. And, and what he's doing in the song is he's asking the question so that you realize how stupid that your thoughts have already been. Is anyone rich enough to pay God off? Is there among men those that God looks upon with admiration with their greatness? Wonder what the exchange rate is in heaven. I'm always looking at exchange rates because I send money to Asia and I want to know how much. And so they'll tell me, I need uh, 1,500,000 you know, chat. And I'll go, okay, what is 1,500,000 chat in USD? You know, I'm always, does anybody ever, maybe if, if you send money, that's what I do. I do it a lot. So I was wondering, wonder what the exchange rate, Marie, is in heaven for the U.S. dollar. For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul, it says in Matthew chapter 16. For what is man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Matthew 16, 26, if you need to look it up. These questions blast away at the foundations of fools who think that they are safe when their bank balances are high and who justify lives spent earning and accumulating wealth with this hope in mind. Here the psalmist with these questions immediately gives the hear a true perspective on the actual power of material wealth. You can spend it, but you can only spend it here. Do you know that I, so I can take money to Myanmar and sometimes they don't like it. It is a fold in it. And they're like, it's worthless. It makes me so mad. Sometimes I'll crinkle it up on my hand, throw it on the ground. I'm like, it's as worth in America as $100 as, as it is right now, all crinkled up. You know, and they're like, it's worth nothing here. Take it, get it away. It makes me mad. But I can tell you right now, you start holding up money to God in heaven, and they're going to treat you like they do in Myanmar. Your money, it no good. Riches cannot buy the one thing that all men need most. So it might not be able to protect you, though. See, we know that. We know it can't spend in heaven, right? But we go, well, we can't spend it in heaven, but right here, right now, it can really do me some good. And what the psalm is going to tell you is it's not really going to do you as much good as you think it's going to do you right now either. So the song starts off helping you to understand it's worth nothing in heaven. And what it's telling you is that on earth, it really isn't worth that much either. Suddenly in a sinking ship that is this life, the bars of gold in your hand become an anchor instead of a flotation device. And if we cling to the, and if we are wise, we will cast these foolish notions from us and cling to God. I won't tell the whole story, but there was a ship sinking uh, in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of, I believe, South Carolina, and it was filled with gold. And as it began to sink, people had bars of gold, right? And they had them in their hand. And at some point, what do you think happened when the ship went down? I think I'm going to hold these while I swim. No, no. No, it was like, uh, right? They got rid of them. Quick. You can't swim with gold. For as Jesus put it after he met the rich young ruler that he, who loved his possessions too much to part with them and follow him, he said, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now you might go, well, I'm rich. Well, okay. The Bible says there is nothing impossible. God can even make the impossible come to pass. He didn't say it was impossible. He said it's just really, really, really hard. Who wants to make it harder to go to heaven? 
Verse 6 and 7, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Wealth cannot save the ones we love or ourselves from judgment. And so wealth is not quite as important as the one who can save us. Amen? Verses 8 and 9, for the redemption of their soul is precious. And it ceases forever that he should still live forever and ever and not see corruption. This is King James language, which you really got to look in the Hebrew to understand. And what he's saying is, he's saying the price of it is more than you could ever pay. No man's got enough money to pay that bill. In these two verses, the worst precious and the phrase, it ceaseth ever, although clumsy in the King James, drives home the truth that what is truly priceless would be actually a better word. To have favor with God. Once again, you can't buy God off. Hezekiah's storehouses of gold, his jewels, and valuable treasures could not and would not have added one more day to his life on this earth when God had made an appointment for death. He held them out in his hand to God. Death would have been his portion. Instead, he humbled himself and he cried unto the Lord in repentance. This is a currency that spends well here and in heaven. Do you know humility has a great exchange rate with God? God's word said he resists the proud, but he does what? He gives grace. How many of you want grace? Everybody, come on. If you want grace, say, I want it. I want it. I want grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace. The exchange rate for humility is grace. Kind of makes you want to be humble, doesn't it? Here's some money, God. I want some grace. Nope, can't have it. Here's some money, God. I want some faith. Here's some money. I'd like to just live a little bit longer. God's like, money doesn't spend here. When our day of evil comes upon us and men press down their heel upon us, money is not going to save us then either. You might be like those people. Well, those rich folks, I don't remember what city it was. They got their guns out and stood in their front yard. You guys, they've been in the news all for like two weeks, right? All their bad people, right? Don't come to my house. You see this little, you see this little woman with her gun, you know? The guy with his gun. Yeah. You ain't got enough money. To, if people want you dead, you ain't got enough money to keep that from happening. Verses 10 through 13 deal with the depths of this sin and sickness that lead our Lord to remind us that man cannot serve two masters. That we will either love the one and hate the other. For Paul, he told Timothy this, that the love of money is what? The root of all evil. And I know, I know in a room full of rich people, and, and that's what you are. I've been to Myanmar. I know you're rich. I'm just telling you that right now. I know every one of you are the richest people on planet Earth. You don't know it. You're all like, man, we hardly have anything. I mean, I only have, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in my retirement account. I'm barely going to make it. Oh, no. Sorry, maybe I underestimated. Maybe a half million. Who knows? Whatever. I don't know. We can check mine later on. Matthew chapter 6, he says this. Now, we don't like this. I'm telling you, when you read this, I, this is it's like, we don't like this. Well, what exactly does this mean? I mean, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, and all you got to do is get a little bit of money 
and you just want a little bit more, right? Isn't that kind of how it works? You get a little bit of security, you're like, you know what, I, I, just, I just need a little bit more. That's what I need. And if I had a little bit more, it's going to be even better. What I'm telling you, this is not about how money is bad. This is about how we are. That's what this song is about. The song isn't about money. money. The Bible says there's nothing evil in itself. The message is about when you feel secure, when you think it is a refuge, when it is your fallback plan, it's not a good plan. Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moths rust, corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. It's like, okay, you know, people can steal it. Probably not good. I get that. He doesn't just say that. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where, uh, this is the rub right here. This is the hard part. This is the part we deal with. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart. See, the problem isn't the money. It's what? It's his heart. You see, if the problem, I mean, God gave Hezekiah all of those things he got, right? So God wasn't bad for giving it to him. But the problem was where? In Hezekiah's heart. This is very clear. But once again, we go, well, it really doesn't mean that. I mean, you know. So Jesus goes on. The light of the whole body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. He's giving you, you got a heart problem because you are single-minded people. You're so broken that you can only think about one thing. And so I'm trying to get you to get your mind on the one thing that you can think about and that you can put your heart on and where your security is, and that is me. Because you cannot serve two things. You cannot do it. So he begins to tell them, the problem here isn't the money. It's you. We're sinners. If your eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness, and therefore the light is in it be darkness. How great is the darkness? No man can serve two masters. He will hate the one, and he will love the other. God is saying, I don't want you to hate me. So maybe not having money might be better, because you might love it. Do you know the Bible says God is a jealous God? You go, well, I don't really know. It, it does. God doesn't want you to love money. It's idolatry. And I'm telling you, if anybody needs to hear that, it's us. We love it as much as anybody. Why? Because we have so much. We say, yes, we can. We can do it. With God, all things are possible. I can do it. Oh, Lord, send me more money. Send me more money. We all joke, Lord, curse me with that curse. Oh, God, I'll be, that'll be the cross that I bear. Send me the money, Lord. That's what we do. And we can all giggle and chuckle because you know it's true. Oh, Lord, I'll take the burden to be in the wealthy man. Oh, hallelujah. Glory. Every down and I, I mentor young men, and, you know, I don't actually call it that, but I just through that word. I'll talk to young men. And some of them will say, you know, I really feel my calling is to have a lot of money and, uh, that we'll be able to bless the kingdom. And I, I always know when I talk to that kid, I'm like, that kid's got so much to learn. He's so, he's, he's so, he's just unveiled himself for what he loves. And, and yes, I really feel that God is calling me to a life of piles and piles of money because, you know, it's just the suffering I will have to bear for the Lord. And, and, and I know it'll take a lot, but, but I'll do it, you know. And Jesus offered us a better, more secure way to live, and I call it a great invitation. And I hope that you accept it today. Jesus told them what to do. 
But nobody wants to do this, and nobody believes this is really how you live. I'm telling you right now, you don't believe this. I don't believe this. This is, this is very hard to believe, but it's true. How many know if Jesus said it, it's true? Yes. All right. I just thought I'd throw that out because this is going to hurt. It's going to sting. Therefore, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor for your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap. They don't gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not better than them? What if you by taking one thought can add a cubit to your statue? What take you thought for your raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they toil not. Neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God will clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall not, how much more shall he not clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore take no thought, saying, What we shall eat, what shall we drink, and wherewithal shall be clothed. For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all of these things. But seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of that stuff that you're wanting to seek after, that you think you need, that you think your life should be filled with worry getting. Do you know you're going to get it? I mean, if you really want security, don't try to secure your own life. People of God, what would happen to us if we answered this great invitation by faith and we lived it out? What on earth would happen in the church? Paul told Timothy to beware of Christians who did not understand this fundamental truth in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 5, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. How many people know whole church is built on this idea? The Bible says people that believe that gain and godliness are combined from these people get away from them. Well, that's not nice, Pastor Mark. Well, I didn't say it. Supposing that gain is godliness from such, withdraw yourself. Get away from people that believe like this. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. What do you think, Tim, what do you think Brother, Brother Paul is quoting from? He's quoting from Psalms. So we brought nothing in this life, and we're going to take nothing out. He's quoting from the Psalm I just read. He's quoting from Psalm 49. Having food and raiment, let us be content. They that will be rich fall into the temptation and snare, and many foolish and hurtful lusts drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Folks, if you want to, you don't have to be a, a great, wise prognosticator to look at any situation out here and say, what in the world is wrong? I guarantee you, if you boil it down, it has something to do with with money. And honestly, when, I, when you go, certainly not. Certainly, people aren't doing this just for the money. You'll, you'll find out, yeah, they, they actually are. It's all about the money. Now, if they're all about the money and they're like doing all the horrible things they do, should we be like them? No. Paul told the Ephesians, we are not to walk like the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorances that are in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They don't know any better, but I'm telling you, you know better. 
For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some have coveted after. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many arrows. If you love money, people of God, please be warned. Probably you're going to be hurt by it. Verse 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. What does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God. Fight the good of faith. Lay hold of eternal life whereunto you're called. And as professed the good profession of faith, he's saying there is a better way. You know, Jesus said if you give up houses and land and mothers and brothers, did he say, and you can just be poor the rest of your life and suffer and that'll show you godly? No. He said, if you give it up and seek me, I will give it to you times a hundred in this life. So if you really are just in it for the stuff, seek the kingdom and you'll get the stuff anyway. Proverbs 30 says this, and you know, I've read through the book of Proverbs many times and, and this was kind of new for me. I read it again this week and I love that Proverbs 30. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. This is, if someone's going to say something like that, it's going to be in the proverb. You want to listen up, right? Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with food that is convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of God in vain. What is the proverb asking here? It's for his daily bread. He's asking not for a life like, like being poor is not a great virtue. But being rich is not a great security either. And the middle road and the, and the, and the, the let God provide for your day, that's it. That's the life. I want to be content, right? Paul said this in Philippians 4.11, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. We sang a whole song about it. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. You know, when you don't love money, you can have it. And when you don't need poverty, you know, some of us need it. I've been wondering if that's what I've needed all my life. It's just poverty because I'm so messed up. And I have come to the conclusion, Brother Luke, that I have been poor because I've needed to be poor. You might go, oh, that's a terrible admission. Maybe you'll be poor. You know what? Whatever. I drive around in my car with the engine mounts. You know, when I, when I, when I push on the gas, my whole engine moves because I, you know, the engine mounts are out. And the windshield's broken and, uh, you know, I haven't owned a car newer than 15 years old. I don't even know when. And, and there's no virtue in it. I can tell you that right now. In fact, it tempts me to cuss sometimes, you know, when, like, like when we broke down on date day and the alternator died. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. We broke down in the parking lot of AutoZone. But the deal is God knows us. He knows what we need. He knows if poverty is what we need. He knows if we can deal with wealth. But the deal is, is that we love it. And when, what, the, what the psalm is telling us to do, it's telling us that when we see it as security, when we put our trust in it, when we, we love it and don't love God, we're foolish. We're in verse 10. I'm getting through the psalm, okay? 
Verses 10, 11, and 12, and 13 explain that although men see this truth with their very own eyes, we believe the false thing anyway because we're so sinful. I mean, you look at out and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. I hear what you're saying, Pastor Mark. Money can't save me, right, from a hurricane. I can't hand money to a tornado and say, could you go to the next town? As the floods are rising and you're going to die, you can't go. Could I offer you some securities in Microsoft? You know, you know it's not going to work, right? Verse 10, for man sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person, and they leave their wealth to others. Like, everybody sees this. Nobody's believing that really they can take it with them. They know this, right? They watch it happen. They have eyes to see it, and they see it around them every single day. And yet, everybody say, and yet. They have eyes to see, but they don't see it. And they refuse to believe what they're seeing so plainly. Verse 11, their inward fault is that their houses shall continue forever and that their dwelling places to all generations, they, and their, they even name their lands after themselves. What are they doing? They're like, I'm going to live forever, right? Fame. Nevertheless, man being in honor abides not. He's like the beast that perish. He goes, the guy in his fancy outfit, the guy with the big house, the guy with the big pile of money, the guy with all of that stuff, he dies too. He dies just like the dog. Like, you know, last night I killed two animals. It was terrible. They left the back door open of our house and to, our mudroom was open and there were four raccoons in the mudroom just like <laughs> eating dog food, smoking cigars. You should have seen him. It was amazing. I went around back door with a shotgun. Nathaniel is in the kitchen, and I'm like, on your mark, get set, go, open the kitchen door. He's like, I'm not opening the kitchen door. I'm like, come on, you got to scare him out. He's like, I don't think they're scared of me, Dad. <laughs> he goes and gets a poker. I get my shotgun. He opens the door, and the, and the, and the, and the raccoons literally went like, seriously? <laughs> like, he ain't been doing nothing, you know? And I don't know what he did, but eventually they came out. One of them came out on the porch, stood up on his hind legs like a person. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. And I went, boom, and I blew him off the porch. And then another one came out, boom, I shot him off the porch. The Bible says that a dead man, that a rich man dies like a beast. Blood came out. They were growling and rolling and flying. He's like, that's what happens. Die like an animal. This is what poor people do. They, they shoot their own porch. <laughs> I got a prayer request later for someone to help me build a porch. Uh, he says these things and he knows they're not true, but he believes them. Isn't that the way we are? We, you know how we know something's true, but we, we, we know it's not true, but we believe it anyway? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We say, uh, when someone points out our foolishness, we say, yeah, we, we know it. And, and, but we do what? We go on living the same way. It's what we do. Saying you believe something is not actually believing it. What you do and how you live, where you lay up your treasures, is a measure of your doctrine. Not what you say with your lips, your hands and your time. What are you doing with your treasure? Where are you laying it up? Where are you putting it? Where are you hiding it? Where are you piling it up? This is their folly, yet their posterity approve of their sayings. They know it and their children know it. That's what the word posterity means, their children. They know it and their kids know it too. But what do their kids do? Their kids do just like dad. 
They see that dad's time, morning, noon, and night, week after week, all night, hours upon hours are spent doing what? Earning. Earning what? They know it. Their children know it. They watch how they, you live. They're like, yeah, I know what you say. I know you take me to church. I know we read the scripture, but what are you doing, Dad? What are you doing with your time? Where are you investing your life? Where are you pouring it into, Dad? And the kids say, oh, oh, I know. Yeah, we're seeking first the kingdom. I get it. I get it. I get it. And they live like you who are not seeking the kingdom. This is all the very definition of spiritual blindness. Be careful, people of God, of the deceitfulness of sin. We preach against it. We read books about it. We post on social media against it. And yet, we do the very things. And we don't do the things that God says that we should do and should be at the heart of our lives. And we go, well, that's really not what the Bible means. Hear the word of the Lord and hear the warning of the Lord today, brothers and sisters. Verse 14, like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed upon them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall consume in the grave from the dwelling. You see, the grave robbers of Egypt knew full well that even though Pharaoh's built pyramids and they built little houses of gold and sarcophagus covered with, with, with diamonds and, and rubies, and all they, they put little boats for them to, to go around in this fictional sea in the afterlife. And they piled up food around them. They know they never ate it. They know they never rode in the boats because the grave robbers went inside. And they said, look, it's all still here. They knew it. People know. People know it's a bunch of foolishness. Generations built pyramids to put all this junk in. For what? For nothing. The best that embalmers and money could buy, even those so-called gods were nothing but food for the worms. And their beauty faded like the dying flower. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed unto man once to die. Hezekiah had his appointment and he pleaded for a later date to change his appointment. God gave it to him. And you know what Hezekiah did with it? Hezekiah was a good king, but what he did was he trusted in his stuff. So God said, all right, I made a promise to you about what you're going to do, but your children are going to pay for this. And they did. Verse 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. God alone holds the power of life and death in his hand. He showed in the story of Hezekiah, he teaches us that he alone can save us, not only from an untimely death in this life, but from the eternal death in the lake of fire. What can man give as a ransom for his soul? Everybody say nothing. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. Verse 16. When men and women are made rich who regard not God, it often vexes our souls. But this is a temporary mercy even to those who will know no mercy hereafter. They have not escaped their fate. No one will. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. They will not be able to take it with them. And where they go, where they're ever going, even if they could take it there, there will be no one to give it to who will care. Nothing will change their condition where the worm dies not and the flame cannot be quenched. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul. Men will praise thee when thou doest well. You know what? He was honored. He was thought well. They made a monument to him. He built libraries, you know. What's, what's Dale Carnegie, Right? 
He built library after library. You can go into small towns all over this nation. He built library after library. I love them. I'm thankful for the Carnegie libraries. But if you know why he built them, they'll mean something different. Maybe if you don't know the history of it, you don't know the history of the Johnstown flood and of the thousands of people that died in a moment because of greed. He felt guilty the rest of his life that he had amassed a massive, massive fortune. He had so much money, but he didn't have as much money as Rockefeller had, and he wanted to be the richest man in the world. And so he hired a man to oppress and treat his employees like trash and to cut down uh, on uh, things in, in, in the workplace that made men safe. And he hired this guy by the name, his last name was Frick. And Frick was a nasty, he was nasty as his name sounds. And he got a commission off of all that he did to make Carnegie richer. And he got so rich and he got so full of pride. He, was, he, uh, he liked to go to this club. They wouldn't let him in a club because he was a brute. He was a nasty, disgusting man. And they wouldn't let him join the club. He said, this guy's a vile man. So he said, all right, I'm rich enough. I'll build my own club. And he did. Right on the lake that was right beside the city of Johnstown in America where the greatest natural, or, or, or dis, not a natural disaster, but a man-made disaster killed people. They built this club. But good old Frick, he didn't like to go the long way around the lake. He wanted to go the short way over the dam. And he went over the dam as he went over the dam. It was hard for him to go, and he didn't like it. The road was narrow. It kind of scared him. And he said, I want this road wide. And they're like, to make the road wider, you've got to take earth off of the dam. You've got to bring it lower. And they're like, sir, if we do that, the dam may give way. And he's like, I don't care about that. I want my road wider. Make it wider! And they did. And one night while they were partying over at the club, a big rain came and filled the lake and the dam burst and killed everyone in that town. 2,500, I believe. It's a horrible, horrible tragedy. And it is a tragedy based on greed and on filth and disgusting pride. Though, he, though while he lived, they blessed his soul, all men praised him. But he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall not see the light. There is no secret passage from the grave, no ticket ride from death that money can purchase. It is a one-way ticket to the judgment of God. Man that is in honor and understands not is like the beast that perisheth. They honor men who do not know God. They, pos- they do not know the God that possesses them. They are very, the honor that they have is very transitory, very temporary. I know I've preached for a long time. I better bring it to a close. If you want to read about what God says about wealth, read in James chapter 1, where God says, let the brother of low degree rejoice when he exalted, and the rich in that he is made low. The Bible says, what is wrong with you? You honor rich men. You treat them better. But aren't they the ones that are taking you to court? Aren't they the ones that are stealing your stuff? Aren't they the ones that are ringing? Why do you honor these people? They're ungodly. Don't you understand? And and the whole book of James, it's in chapter 1. It's in chapter 2. It's in chapter... Three and four, five, and four, verse four starts off, or chapter four starts off with rich men weep and wail, for your judgment is coming. I know, real downer. But I hope it's not a downer. I hope it reminds us of what money is. It is a blessing from God that can be used, but we cannot love it. 
We must not live our lives as though we love it. We must live our lives as though God's kingdom has come. And His will can be done on earth as it is heaven. We need to be pouring into people and into lives and into things that will last. Into your children, into the lost, into helping others. If you take care of God's business, God will take care of yours. Folks, I'm the richest man I know. I'm richer than most people. I, I, I never meet people that have the blessings that I have. Now, you can look at my life in another way if you want and say, he's a poor guy. I know what I am. And God has called us all to be rich, to have our treasure laid up in heaven, and to look to him for security in him alone. I'm thankful that God's never let me do anything else. I, may be, I probably would be just as bad or worse than any of these other guys. Can we just be thankful for what we have? Can, can godliness with contentment be the great gain that we come away with today from this message? Oh God, make us content. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for Psalm 49. We thank you for the admonition that it strikes in our heart and that it hopefully dashes the chains away from us that hold us to believing that money is security. Lord, I pray, oh God, Lord, that we would let it go, that we indeed would spend it and be spent for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.